Now, our reading today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're starting at verse 18 and going through to chapter 2, verse 5. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demanded signs and Greeks looked for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews, Greeks and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were noble of birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So Father, we pray for Charles as he comes to speak to us. Would your spirit speak through him? Would our, we have ears to hear what you want to say to us this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, church. A very warm welcome on a very cold day. I don't know how many of you remember, as far back as 2004, there was a well-known film that came out called The Passion of Christ. It was directed by the well-known actor Mel Gibson and it was a film based around the last few days of Jesus' life, the arrest, the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. I did not enjoy the film at all. I found the flogging and whipping scenes and the crucifixion scenes almost too graphic for words. I did not enjoy the film. 
And I found myself, particularly at the crucifixion scene, which went on and on and on for me, saying to myself, please, Lord, just die. Let me get out of this, this cinema, as it were, and think about other things. The one thing I do remember about the, as I came out of the cinema on that night was that as the, we left the auditorium, there was absolute silence. Nobody talked. In normal circumstances, people walk out of the auditorium and they start to talk about, did you enjoy the film, how good the actor or actresses were. But on that night, when I went to see that film, we filed out in absolute silence. I think we were overawed by the content of the film. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. Jesus was not crucified on a golden cross above an altar. He was not crucified on a cross that stood on a stage with flashing lights and smoke screens. Guitars weren't playing, pianos weren't tinkling, and organs weren't blaring out when the Son of God, Jesus, was crucified. He was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem to the sound of yelling and, cheer and jeering and ironic cheering, to the sound of soldiers gambling, to the sound of people mocking. Jesus was crucified in the hustle and bustle amid the sounds of other condemned men dying. These are the circumstances in which Jesus was crucified. Now, if we imagined ourselves for a moment in that scene, with the dust under our feet, the heat of the day beating down upon us, the sounds in our ears of the jeering and the mocking, and there before us is the crucified Jesus. Now, if we were at that scene, I don't know about you, but if someone had turned to me and said, pointing at Jesus, look, there's God reconciling the world to himself. There's God dealing with the sins of the world. I don't think I would have believed them. And yet, this is what the church has sought to proclaim over the past 2,000 years. That at the cross, we encounter God. This is where God is present. And Paul here in this letter to the church of Corinth declares unashamedly that he will proclaim Christ crucified. The Jews want a sign, a miraculous sign. The Greeks, that is the Gentiles, they seek wisdom. But Paul says, we declare, we proclaim Christ crucified. And we will proclaim it even with much fear and trembling. Why? Because here we encounter God. Here, here we encounter God reconciling the world to himself. Now, that word God can cause us all sorts of problems, can't it? Most of the time, when we use the word God, all kinds of pictures, all kinds of words come into our minds. Words like powerful, words like almighty, 
impassable, which means unable to suffer. Immutable, which means doesn't change. The word creator, omnipresent, unknowable, judge. These are all the images and pictures, the words that come into people's minds. But Paul says we proclaim Christ crucified. Why? Because this is what God is like. This is who God really is. Now, people often say to me, I will believe in God, Charles, if you give me a sign, if God gives me a sign. If God did this or that, nothing has changed in 2,000 years. People wanted to see a sign in Paul's day. They wanted to see a sign today to believe in God. Some say, I will believe in God if it all made sense. If he could show me that it all made sense from my perspective. They want, in their wisdom, to prove the existence of God. They want the killer argument. But we preach Christ crucified. We need to hear that today. For it seems to me, far too often, we seek to go down the sign route or the wisdom route. And Paul says that's not the route, that's not the road to take. Again, Paul says Christ crucified is who we proclaim. And in a world where success is an idol, Christ crucified often makes no sense. The great German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote these words, in a very powerful words. In a world where success is the measure and the justification for all things, him who was sentenced and crucified remains a stranger. Bonhoeffer wrote those words in the late 1930s, but how true those words are still today. Nothing has changed, but in Christ crucified, we encounter what God is truly like. Now, I want to look at this passage that we had read out and make three simple statements and get you to think them through and perhaps in the days ahead, just ponder and meditate on them. First of all, I want to, you to notice verse 22, the foolishness of the cross. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Now, don't get Paul wrong here. It's not that Paul was incapable of philosophical reasoning or that he was incapable of performing miracles. On occasions, he did that. But Paul knew that you could easily create a cult by those means, but you could not create true saving faith. For saving faith, Paul had learnt, was brought to people through the message of the cross. Now, for the Greeks looking for kind of intellectual titillation, the cross was nonsense. For if there was one thing that their philosophical creeds all agreed on, it was this, that God could not suffer. And for the Jews looking for powerful miracles, the cross was a scandal. 
the epitome of weakness and failure. A dire Messiah held no nationalistic hope for the Jews. The idea of a dying Messiah was indeed offensive to them. Yet Paul knew that it was through such foolishness that God planned to save men and women. Look at verse 24. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. Now, do notice that Paul is not above using the terminology of his opponents. He does talk about Christ being the power of God and Christ being the wisdom of God. Paul's opponents demanded demonstrations of power and wisdom, and Paul would echo their vocabulary, but he gave their vocabulary a new content. Paul did not surrender to their ideas, but he would capture those words for Christian use. And with great genius, Paul here is redefining the word wisdom, for instance, in verse 30, filling it with new meaning. Look at verse 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. You see, it's not rhetoric that's our wisdom. No, it's righteousness. And that word righteousness is a word from the law courts. Because the problem of the world is guilt. And that guilt condemns us before a just and holy God. And that guilt cannot be atoned for by mere eloquent words. And it's not science, he says, but sanctification, holiness, a word from the temple. For the problem of the world is defilement, which excludes us from anything holy. You and I cannot be cleansed, forgiven by philosopher's logic. And it's not ritual, he says, but redemption, a word here from the slave market. You see, the problem of this world is the evil and wickedness that enslaves us. And this cannot be merely broken by mystical experiences, by mere ritual. Once you realise the nature of our human dilemma, then you will realise the only power and wisdom that is of use to anybody is that which flows from the cross of Christ, where the Son of God bore in his own tortured body the judgment and the punishment that was rightly ours, where Jesus, the Lamb of God, shed his blood, the perfect sacrifice to cleanse us from all, un all unholiness. Righteousness, holiness, redemption. That's true wisdom. The message of the cross is foolishness, says Paul, to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. And I want you to know and think this through. There's no way we can avoid a collision of opinion about this. There is no escape from the potential unpopularity of the message of the cross. If we offer what the world understands by wisdom, then we will have to abandon the foolishness of the cross, the foolishness of Christ crucified. But it says, Paul, it is in Christ crucified that we find the content of all true wisdom. 
And no matter how bad the image may be, we have no alternative. We have to preach Christ crucified. We have to preach the foolishness of the cross. But the foolishness does not end there. We have to face up to the foolishness of the church. Look at verse 26. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. You know, there's something um, ironical, even pretentious, about the fact that some Christians in Corinth were wanting to present themselves as wise in the world's eyes. Because the truth, they were anything but that. If an unbiased observer went into the church at Corinth, he would realise as much very soon. And be honest with yourselves, says Paul. Don't pretend. Don't try and live up to an image you think will impress those outside the church. You see, the church does not need that image. It is inconsistent with the church's vocation. And so Paul says, think of what you were when you were called. And Paul here is thinking of that inward call of the spirit, which only those who are being saved receive. A call which brings with it the ability to discern the power and wisdom of God in the cross of Christ. Now, I want to ask the question, get you thinking, why do some people receive and respond to this call of God and others don't? Well, Paul makes it quite clear, doesn't he, in this passage, and he states it three times. God chose, verses 27 and 28. God chose, God chose. Now, I know our human pride reacts against those kind of words. For we very much want to be saved by our own devices. I think we fight very hard against the God who insists on saving us despite ourselves, who intervenes in our, into our moral helplessness and our intellectual darkness and by his own divine initiative brings us his light and life. We don't like to be told God chose we don't like to receive charity. We say it contradicts free will. We say it contradicts divine justice. But the point is this, and it's very relevant to us in our world. As long as we go on insisting that God's salvation must be placed within our own critique of, of our philosophy, our reason, we find plenty of things we cannot accept, plenty of questions Paul has not answered Plenty of foolishness. As long as the clay rebels against the potter, as long as human wisdom refuses to bow down to divine wisdom, we will find Paul's words here a scandal. But they are here. Now, people who respond to the gospel are chosen. And the message of the cross awakens faith in their hearts because God chooses them. But why has he chosen me? Why has he chosen you? Why has he chosen them? Paul does not tell us. But he does tell us that God did not choose because they, we were wise. They, we were strong. They, we were influential. They, we were of noble birth. In other words, there's nothing in us that motivated the choice. 
And that's why we call it grace. The undeserved love of God. Love that originates not from the attractiveness of the one loved, but from the will of the lover. And that's how the New Testament describes salvation. It's a matter of God's gracious choice. And what's the consequence of all that? Well, look at verse 29, so that no one may boast before him. That's God. And I want to say we need to understand afresh that the church is not there to bring confirmation to our own intellectual self-confidence. It's there to challenge the very basis of our intellectual self-confidence. And let me ask you, Think in your own mind, look around at the church as it were, uh, I know you're looking at a screen, but look, think about in your own mind the people who are in this church. Don't you think we are a very peculiar people that God has chosen? Finally, one last thing. The foolishness of preaching. From verses chapter 2, verse 1 onwards, Paul is acknowledging the foolishness of preaching, speaking about his preaching. And he he acknowledges that in many ways his preaching is ineffective from a human point of view. And yet he chose preaching for two reasons. Look at uh, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. First of all, why Paul preaches is that the alternative did not work, did it? In this verse, in verse 21, I think we have an indictment of all human scholarship and all claims about human wisdom. The world, through its wisdom, did not know God. All those libraries, all those books may have changed the world in in many ways, but through them, men and women have not found God. I read this week a really interesting comment, and it was this. That education, and I'm not against education, don't get me wrong, but education, this man wrote, is like a tower. It lifts you higher and higher, it expands the limits of your horizons, but it does not displace you from the centre of your world. If anything, education consolidates your position there at the centre of your world. Preaching, I know, may have a bad image, But the trouble is that all other methods born of human know-how don't work in this matter of knowing God. But there is a second reason why Paul chose preaching, because it is the method that God had appointed. Look at chapter 2 and verse 4. My message and preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power. Now, that phrase, the Spirit's power, has been interpreted in a number of different ways. What does it mean? Well, I think in this context, it means the divine help that the Corinthians received while they were, while they were listening to Paul preach. You see, when God is determined to win somebody, to call them, God accompanies his message with power. He delivers it personally to the heart to ensure effective reception to the message. There's a supernatural element to the message when God intends to convert somebody by it. It comes not just with a command to repent and believe, 
but also with the ability to repent and believe. And what is the source of that power? Why? It's the Holy Spirit of God himself. The power which makes effective the word of God in people's lives. I want to end with a lengthy quote from John Stott, the well-known Anglican writer and preacher. He's now, uh, he's now dead, but he was a powerful man of God for many, many years. And in one of his books, he writes this, and I want you to listen to these words and reflect on this message of Christ crucified. He writes this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how, how could one worship a God who was immune to that pain? I turn to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. God has set aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. We preach Christ crucified. Amen.